So if you'd turn to Isaiah 3, I, I thought momentarily about skipping this particular passage and doing something Christmassy, and then the Lord reminded me, well, this is the Christmas story. And let me tell you why. Because if you've read chapter 3 ahead and you realize what it is, it speaks of, it is a description really of the day of the Lord. And here's why this is important. Because the babe that came to the manger came for a purpose, came for a reason. He came to save us from our sin, amen? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is life eternal. The reason that this particular passage you could say is a Christmas passage is because when someone asks you, you know, you Christians always say you're saved. What are you saved from? You're saved from the wrath of God that is going to be poured out one day on all unrighteousness. That's the short answer. You're actually saved from the penalty of your own sin. Because of the grace that we've been given, because of the forgiveness that we have, what God would rightly be able to issue to each one of us, which he still could, but he's so good he won't because we believed, is his wrath. One day he is going to pour out his wrath on all unrighteousness. And so chapter 3 is really a reminder specifically to the Jewish people of exactly what lies ahead, what we're saved from. And so we'll pick up tonight Isaiah chapter 3. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into the word. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you personally. Thank you for saving me. Lord, I still deserve, have always deserved, that you would judge me and pour out your wrath on my sin, but you won't. That's how great the love that you have for us is. That's what you, Jesus, did by becoming a man, being Emmanuel, God with us, coming to this earth, living your life sinlessly and then dying on Calvary's cross. And so, Lord, as we study tonight, as we set ourselves down at your feet, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you'd speak to us. Bless us, Lord, with understanding and knowledge and wisdom into all things. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look backwards just a bit to verse 12 of chapter two, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything, proud, lofty upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. One day, the Lord is going to do what he has always promised to do. That's the context of chapter three. Verse 12 provides us with that as we now begin chapter three. And so when it says, for behold, It's referring to the day of the Lord in chapter 2. For behold, the Lord of hosts takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, a mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of the 50, an honorable man, the counselor, the skilled artisan, an expert enchanter. And I will give children to be their princes. And so as we look at this chapter, one of the great promises that is a negative promise to those who won't abide by it is the promise that one day God is going to deliver the nation Israel as he has always said he's going to do. And so as we look at this chapter, look at it in the positive vein, though what is being said and what will be said is horrifically negative. For those of you that have children, why is it that we give negative consequences 
for actions to our children when we attempt to change their behavior because we do not want to give them what it is that we are telling them we will give them if they continue down that behavioral path. Amen? So when you tell your child, well, I'm going to take away all your video games, it's not that you want to take away their video games, it's you want them to stop doing what they're doing. Amen? Isn't that the reasoning? Now, infinitely greater in that sense is what the Lord is saying to the world. I want you to stop doing what you're doing. He's going to make that very, very, very clear. And so he puts before us this time called the day of the Lord. And he gives us the reasoning for the day of the Lord. As we look at this judgment day, mentioned 24 times in scripture, so this is not a light subject. It isn't mentioned in a tertiary way. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and almost the entirety of the book of Joel is written about this. If you throw in then the entire book of Revelation, you have a very large percentage of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that reminds us that God is holy. God is just. God made promises to his children Israel that he intends to keep. And at the same time, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That he doesn't want to give the negative consequences that he's laying out, but he nonetheless reminds us of what those consequences would be if we fail to change our attitude and our actions. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 says, For alas... That great day, there's none like it, is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Remind yourself that Jacob is also Israel, amen? So when you see Jacob, it's really the condensation of the totality of the nation Israel. It was before Jacob had his name changed and became governed by God, he was heel catcher. And so as Jacob is given this promise by Jeremiah the prophet, it says something that's pretty unique. It's a time that Jacob's trouble will come into view, but he's actually going to get saved out of it. That is the promise that the apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, that one day all of Israel will be saved. Jeremiah says, here's the issue. We're going to see this when we get to Daniel's 70th week. In just a a couple of weeks in the book of Daniel in chapter 9. It says there in verse 24. For your people Israel and upon your holy city Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to make an end to the sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision, the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. This angel comes on the scene and says, look, there's going to be this period of time. You're going to see these 69 sevens, these seven-year periods, some 483 years, and then this prince is going to come. This prince we've been studying in the book of Daniel, by the way, who speaks pompous words who's a ruler of a one-world government and a one-world religion and oversees a one-world monetary system. He's going to come on the scene. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 12 reminds us, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people round about. And when they say in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem, that in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut to pieces so that all the people of the earth will be gathered together against it. There's going to be a period of time when God finally judges the world and the focus of that judgment is going to be this little tiny nation, Israel. They will be this burdensome cup 
this, this nation that causes the rest of the world to tremble. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, you know Israel's not that big a deal. You, you need to read your Bible. Because the word Israel is mentioned 2,565 times in almost 2,300 verses. Israel is a huge part of what the Bible is all about. God made a promise to Abraham. That promise transferred to Isaac. That promise transferred to Jacob. That promise transferred to the totality of God's people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's never been taken back because God doesn't take back his promises, amen? So if he has promised to deliver them, if he has promised to save them, as he has promised to make them a great nation and to bless the entirety of the whole world and to place them into a very specific, unique land that is theirs and theirs alone, then it's incumbent upon God, incumbent upon God to make good on that promise. And in fact, when you look at God's name throughout the totality of Scripture, more than 200 times he's called the God of Israel. Specifically. And so what God is saying here is there's a judgment day that's coming. But that judgment day is for a very specific purpose. That purpose is very clear when you read the book of Revelation. Because you see in the first six chapters of the book of Revelation not a single evidence of the church on earth. The church throughout the first six chapters is in heaven. And then all of a sudden, the trumpets sound, the scrolls are open, the bowls are poured out, and this incredible destruction erupts on the face of the earth. It's because God's not kidding He is going to do exactly what he promised to do through the prophet Joel. And you can read the the book of Joel. There's just three chapters to it later. But I'd encourage you to read that at some point in time and the entirety of the book of Revelation as we look at this very difficult time that is right ahead of us. When you look at the history of Israel and her neighbors... The Bible plainly starts to speak very quickly as soon as the children of Israel, they've escaped from Pharaoh, they've crossed into the wilderness, they mess up, God has them wander around in circles for 40 years, they get to the edge of the promised land, they finally make it to Kadesh Barnea, they're looking in and they see giants in the land and say, yeah, we're not going in there. Who is it that leads them in? It's Joshua and Caleb, amen? The book of Joshua immediately records what? War. God's promised the land. There is the land. He's promised the Jewish people the land. That's your land, but you're also going to have to fight for it. And so the books of Joshua and Judges, to some degree the book of Ruth, very definitely First and Second Kings, record this incredible conflict that the moment the children of Israel actually inherit the land and the land is divided, they immediately are at war with their neighbors. That is the history of the nation Israel. Ultimately, that would come to fruition Uh, as the children of Israel are are driven eventually from their land and from the time of Christ until May 14th of 1948, they spent the better part of 2,000 years kicked out of their own land. We call it the diaspora, the dispersion. They're scattered all over the world. Little clusters of Jewish people Many in Europe, the Ashkenazis. Some in the former Soviet Union in Russia. 
many here in the United States of America. But the Jewish people are, are at war with their neighbors. The moment they return, anybody know your history, what happens? You see, Zechariah said, I'm going to make the hearth of their fire like wood, and they'll devour the people around about them. Ezekiel 38 says that eventually all of their neighbors, which, by the way, are entirely Muslim nations now, 100%. Every nation around it, for those of you that know your history, Lebanon used to be largely Christian. Parts of Persia used to be fairly Christian. Some of Syria, the southern part of it, used to be Jewish and Christian. But now they are entirely Muslim nations. And interestingly enough, the book of Ezekiel actually names the nations that will come against Israel in the very last days. The day of the Lord. The time of Jacob's trouble. When God finally says enough, I told you don't do this. I told you leave my people alone. I told you that land is my land. If you read the book of Joel carefully, you're going to find out that the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is actually God's land. But he gave it to Israel. And he said, it's yours, inhabit it in obedience. And so now they've come back into the land. And so what's the history of modern Israel? It's very short, by the way. It's a mere 70 years. From May 14th, 1948 to today, the nation Israel has inhabited actually less than the totality of the land that God actually promised to the Jewish people, but they're in the land. Just as the prophet Ezekiel said, they would come back to the land, they would speak their own language, and the dry bones would have flesh and sinew put on them. That's happened. And exactly as Zechariah prophesied, they would then become a burden to the entire world. For those of you that are interested in such things, more than 60,000 individual votes have been cast in the United Nations, in other words, countries voting for something, against guess what nation? Israel. That tiny nation is less than one-tenth of 1% one of the world's entire population. In other words, 99.99% of the world is not Israel. And yet 34% of everything that the UN has ever done since its founding has involved in some way, shape, or form something about, for, with, or geared towards dealing with the nation Israel. You think Israel's a burden to the world? Look at the uproar that we had when our president, rightly, by the way, moved our embassy to the capital city of the state of Israel, which is Jerusalem. The whole world condemned the United States of America for doing what should be done. Why? Because the world is going to come against Israel in the very last days. The whole world. And so when you look at Israel's modern history... Skeptics, you know, accuse those of us who believe in a literal rendering of these passages for trying to squeeze it all in there, but it, it's not so. Speaking, they're now speaking Hebrew, just as they did. You, you realize that most of those who have come back to the land of Israel, many of them, as they brought their families back, the, the second and third generations didn't speak Hebrew. They have to have Hebrew classes in a Hebrew country but they realize that they need that language because that's one of the defining uh, factors of anyone being a nation. 
A nation is generally comprised of a couple of things. A common language, common monetary system, and common goals. Israel's goals are to simply stay alive because they're completely surrounded on all sides by those who seek their demise. As they reestablish their nation, as the UN votes against them, as, as you look at what's happened in their world, some of the prophecies are frightening if you really look at them. We're going to see as we move on to the latter chapters of the book of Isaiah. The Lord will come and render his anger with fury. They'll be slain by the sword. Jeremiah says much the same thing. I often get asked about the young lions in Ezekiel 38. And people say, well, what about the United States of America? In the last days, the United States of America is not going to be Israel's friend. We are today. But there's going to come a time when we won't be. And I personally believe that that's because the church isn't going to be in the United States of America because we're going to be home in heaven. We will have been raptured. The world comes unglued and comes against them. But if you look at the history and this list, and again, you can download these from the internet, so trying to write these down in the time I'm going to give you is an impossibility, okay? So just go online. You can look at it for hours if you'd like to. This is a list of the modern wars of Israel. Now, if you know the history of Israel, the moment that they declared their independence, the next morning, they fought a war. The very next morning, So that war of independence lasted roughly a couple of years. If you look at this list, you're going to find out that there has not been a full decade where Israel has not been at war with its neighbors. As you think about that, imagine that your country is the size of, if you were to put Orange County and Los Angeles County together, it's about that big. Now, I don't know, you know, if we could clear up the freeways, we could probably drive from one end of L.A. County to the end of, south end of Orange County, uh, certainly less than a couple of hours. But as you look at the history of what's going on in Israel, the whole world has hated Israel. The, the British mandate ends. The Balfour Declaration is over. And less than 24 hours later, on the morning of May 15th, a military coalition of every Arab state in the Middle East launches a full-scale war against a few hundred thousand Israelis. Anyone want to know who won? Yep, Israel. Anybody want to know who won every last one of those wars? Yep, Israel. Why? Because God said once they go back into their land, they'll never be removed again. Never. If you travel with us, and I'll tell you, we just booked our 2020 Israel trip. This is taken from a place called the Quinetra Gap. It's in the Golan Heights, considered by many in the world to be occupied territory. Uh, It's part of Israel. Israel maintains sovereignty over it. If you ask a Syrian, it's Syria. That picture is taken from standing inside of Syria. But it's taken from a very pivotal battle during the 1973 sneak attack, by the way, on Israel. Israel is attacked by 80,000 Egyptians. Uh, They were guarding the southern border with Egypt. Now imagine 80,000 troops. Anyone want to take a guess as how many Israeli soldiers were on the southern border? About 500. Those defenders came through the Suez in this location in the, what was then still Syria, the Golan Heights. 
the Israelis had exactly one tank initially stationed. The Syrians launched a sneak attack with 980 tanks. 980 tanks came against exactly 947 Israelis and one tank. The only thing that saved them was the Lord. And actually, even Israelis will tell you that. Along with those tanks were 28,000 Syrian troops backed by Russia. Modern weaponry, T-55s, T-72 tanks. If you travel there today, this is what you'll see. Every one of those arrows points to a military installation That photo was taken from inside of Israel, the closest installation inside of Syria that is a military base, actually an airfield, is less than three miles. Through that gap came a thousand tanks. By the time they were reinforced, they ended up with about a hundred. Disparity of about ten to one. By the time that battle was done, the Israeli, not, the Israeli army not only defeated the, that, that humongous amount of armor, 10 to 1 advantage, they had actually pushed all the way to the outskirts of the city of Damascus. On that battlefield today, there's all kinds of, this happens to be an Israeli-British-made centurion tank. There are all kinds of Russian-made tanks all over the battlefield still. They just left them there. It's still an active minefield. You can't wander off the roads lest you'll be blown to bits. The reason I'm telling you this, Israel is a stumbling stone. Israel is a trembling cup. Israel is still surrounded by its neighbors. And Israel is fighting for its very existence every moment of every day. Interesting in this battle, the Russian tanks that were coming at the Israelis uh, had far superior capabilities, but they had one capability the Israelis capitalized on. They could not target the enemy unless they stopped. An Israeli tank commander realized that that happened. They also realized that they were using infrared scopes. So they turned their tanks around and drove them backwards towards the enemy driving right through their lines, getting behind them, and then destroying tanks from behind because if you know anything about infrared, you can't see red light. So they drove in the darkness backwards. It's just time and time again, God having his hand on the Jewish people in this very tiny, hotly contested uh, neighborhood. By the time it's all said and done, Muammar Gaddafi sends French Mirage fighters Iraq sent MiG fighter jets. Iraqis sent hunter jets in. Just the Soviet armies tried to block the UN ceasefire. Ultimately, when, the, when it was all said and done, the Jewish people lost 3,000 soldiers. Now, to put that into perspective for us today, in that short little tiny window, that would be the equivalent of us losing 150,000 men based on their population. Six years earlier, on June 8th of 1967, the morning of the Six-Day War, the United States had a ship called the USS Liberty. It was a surveillance ship. It's in the Red Sea, eavesdropping, picking up Israeli radio transmissions. Those transmissions were being transmitted to the Arabs the Israelis sunk a U.S. vessel. Interestingly enough, the U.S. never did anything about it. And no one's ever taken responsibility for it. The Israelis wouldn't claim that they sunk it, and the U.S. wouldn't claim that we even had it. The reason I share all this with you is one day the Lord's going to square all this stuff away. He has been defending Israel. He's going to continue to defend Israel. No one is going to push them out of their land. And every nation that tries, including the Antichrist, 
and all of those nations that surround Israel, they are one day going to be defeated. Ezekiel 38 says it this way, and it is basically the why the day of the Lord is ultimately going to come. Joel chapter 2 actually tells us that he's going to give us three pieces of information, but Ezekiel 38 verses 16 to 23, and I'm going to condense this, and I will bring you against my land, and my fury shall come up against my face. There'll be a great shaking in the land of Israel, the fishes of the sea, the fowls of the heaven, the beasts of the earth, all the creeping things on the face of the earth, and all the men on the face of the earth, all the men on the face of the earth will shake in my presence, and they will know that I am the Lord. You see, the day of the Lord's a big deal. Israel is a big deal. It is, it is one of those things that sometimes people say, well, you know, there's no more plan for Israel. Then I want you to explain to me why they even exist. Why they are still a country. Why after over 20 attempts to exterminate them in 70 years, they are still in the land. It's not because of their, their great... Uh, military might ultimately though they are a strong military force virtually every citizen that's under the age of 35 is in the military in Israel they carry their weapons home with them they're they're stored in their homes they respond from their homes to battle but in the book of Joel it says this very interesting passage I will gather together the nations of the world into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now that valley, by the way, is at the other end of what we call the valley of Megiddo or the plain of Jezreel. It's actually next to Jerusalem. And it says there, I will gather them together and I will plead and punish them there. And he gives the reason why. My people, my heritage Israel, because they were scattered among the nations and they parted my land. Three very specific reasons. Because of what the world has done to Israel, how they were treated, in other words, that they were scattered amongst the nations. So when people start talking land for peace, God looks at it, you're trying to give away my land. I gave it to the Jewish people, and you're trying to take it from me to give it to somebody else. And this is not a political rendering of this. This is what your Bible says. And then finally, as they they give away this land, ultimately the hope is to wipe out the Jewish people. God says, I will bless those who bless you, O Israel, and I will curse those who curse you. The day of the Lord is coming because God's wrath is going to be poured out on the world. And it's likely to be sooner rather than later because of what we know about Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the nations that are gathered together against them. Virtually every nation on the face of the earth has participated in some way, shape, or form of persecuting the Jewish people. We happen to be Israel's greatest ally in the world as the United States of America. But imagine if we did not have a governmental system that actually believed that, which there are some who would prefer we didn't. And in fact, our president had to fight very, very hard in order to make that change, to say, we're moving from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I have a picture of me standing in front of the plaque. Brazil's moving theirs next month is what I understand. There are many nations following suit. There are some that believe that what the Bible says is true. God made a promise that he would one day deliver the Jewish people from all of this tyranny. He hasn't done it yet. He hasn't done it yet. Just last week, Turkey seized an Israeli vessel in the Mediterranean Sea. Three days ago, Israel announced that it had finally deep well drilling out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea 
struck natural gas, they'll begin pumping natural gas next week. They will become energy independent for the first time since they've founded as a nation. They will no longer need to buy Iranian natural gas or oil because they set up every one of their power plants to run on natural gas. They're going to be switched over from coal. So they're going to get stronger. They're not going to get weaker. What we know is the tribulation is God's answer to that. Jesus, in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, Jesus himself says these things, for then, what's then? The day of the Lord. That's the whole context of these last couple of chapters uh, before he reaches chapter 28, chapters 24, 25, 26. We call it the Olivet Discourse. Jesus' commentary on the very last days. For then shall be a great tribulation, not a little tiny one, but a great one, such as what was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor shall it ever be. In other words, it's going to be a time of trouble that's going to involve Israel that is going to be unlike anything the world has ever seen. Now remind yourself, Jesus came to deliver us from the wrath of God. This is the pouring out of God's wrath on the face of the earth. He's finally gonna say, enough, no more. And except that those days should be shortened, there would be no flesh saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Interesting that we're told that during the tribulation, there are actually people who are saved. And a vast majority of them are Jewish. We know at least 144,000 because they're named by tribe, 12,000 from each. And so as Daniel and Jesus and John speak of these things, as Revelation chapter 6 begins with the opening of the seven seals of judgment and it continues through the seventh trumpet and the seven vials, the bowls that are poured out, when you understand what God's doing, he's basically giving that ultimatum to the world saying, don't mess with my people. Don't do it. Jesus spoke of a couple of different kinds of tribulation. John did as well. And it's interesting to me as you, as you look at these things in, in the light of what scripture says about them. When, when Jesus said, Look, I've spoken these things to you that in, you, in me you might have peace, but the, in the world you shall have tribulation. Jesus was talking about just general tribulation. The world's going to kind of have some stuff going on all the time. But when he says great tribulation, he's talking about a very specific three and a half years that the world is going to come unhinged. And that three and a half years is Revelation chapter 6 to 19. That's what it's describing. People take these passages and they try and make them say something they don't say because they are all attached to Isaiah's prophecy of the day of the Lord. This time that's going to come. And so when each layer is added on top of the next and every single time the focal point is Israel, the reason that we are not in this church, those who believe in replacement theology, I, I believe Israel is still going to see Messiah. And yes, they're going to believe on the same one that we believe on, but God still has a plan for them in the last days, and that's why all of these things still matter to us. If they didn't matter to us, we could just skip all this part. If God was already done with Israel, we could just not even read these passages. Because he's certainly not going to pour out his wrath on his kids, amen? I can tell you, he's not going to pour out his wrath on his kids. Why do I know that? Because Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 says this. During those days, the beginning of the tribulation, those on the earth try and hide and they call for the rocks and mountains to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of God. That that pouring out will be the wrath. For the great day of his wrath has come. Read the first six chapters. There's no church. We find the church worshiping in heaven. 
How do we get there? Either one at a time. You cash in your final chip and you head home to the Lord, amen? Or the trumpet sounds and we who are alive and remain meet him in the air, amen? And so in Revelation 14, we find the great tribulation referred to as the wrath of God. Now notice what Paul wrote to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but unto salvation, amen, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that's why he came, he came to die, amen, Emmanuel came to give his life a ransom for many. He came purposefully because God's wrath is going to be poured out eventually who died for us that whether we sleep, whether we've already gone home to be with the Lord or we live, we live together with him. So these last days, this time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week, all of these things, the tribulation, the great tribulation, all of these things point to a time when God is finally going to do what he has promised he would do. The very same thing that no parent wants to do when a parent gives its child an ultimatum. One of the names for us as disciples is the children of God, amen? Every good parent knows this. Sometimes you just gotta tell your kids how it is. They may not believe it at first, but the first time they get the spanking, guess what happens? Generally, the attitude adjusts. That's the hope, amen? So when you suffer negative consequences, God's hope in your life is that you'll understand those negative consequences came from his hand because he chastens those whom he loves. So he's not being mean. He's saying, look, I I told you these things in advance. I'm trying to change your attitude. Your attitude's wrong. And because your attitude is wrong, your actions follow. And because your attitudes have followed your actions and you went the wrong direction, I'm warning you that if you continue down this path, in God's case, you're going to see my wrath. The answer to that was a babe in a manger who would grow up to be Jesus of Nazareth. Amen? Amen who would ultimately give his life a ransom for us. You see, as God speaks into our lives about these things, what he's really trying to do is he's trying to save us. He's trying to remind us, look, I am a holy God. I am a perfect God. I am a just God. I am a promise-keeping God. And so when I told you that those Jewish people are the apple of my eye and I will bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them? I meant that. When I gave them the land that is called Israel, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as a perpetual inheritance. In other words, it's ongoing forever and ever and ever and ever. I meant that. When he said, one day I will save all Israel, he meant that. You see, when you put all the promises together, it starts to point us towards Luke. Whoops. No wonder God is going to try men who dwell on the earth, just exactly as Revelation 3 says. No wonder Revelation 15 says he's going to pour out his wrath on the wicked. No wonder Revelation 11 says he's going to destroy those who destroyed the earth. You you see, God's basically saying you can have Jesus by grace and through faith and salvation and not worry about my wrath or you can keep doing what you want to do. You can keep going the direction you want to go. And so as we wrap up the rest of this chapter, and this will make sense to you in about two minutes. Just as the Lord spoke to Abraham and told him of the impending judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, so the Lord speaks to the whole world about his impending wrath being poured out for what we've done to him personally 
rejecting his son, continuing in wickedness and evil for what we've done to Israel, dividing up the land and disobeying God. He gave us an answer. His name is Jesus. He said, this is how you solve this problem. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be? What are you saved from? The wrath of God. He, he gave us a way out. And it's by grace and through faith. And the faith is a gift. So when someone says God is mean and unfair and unjust, you go, no, no. Not only is he not mean, unfair, and unjust, he is completely long-suffering and not willing that any should perish. And the way we know that, he's given us 2,000 years to knock it off. You see what I'm saying? It's like, stop. Stop already. Believe on my son. He came to save you. But the world keeps going the wrong direction. We keep passing laws that fly in the face of God. We keep doing exactly what he tells us not to do. But just as was the case of Sodom. Remember when the angels arrived? Do you remember what Abraham's prayer was? He starts out, well, there's got to be some righteous people there. He gets down to ten. How many did they find? One. His name was Lot. They rescued righteous Lot and destroyed everybody else. Why is that important to us? Just as 2 Peter chapter 2 says, God uses examples. He, he, he tries to tell us in advance so that we will make the right decisions. God knows, Peter said, how to deliver the, the righteous and reserve the ungodly for the day of judgment. That's why he says he's not appointed us to wrath. That's why Romans 5, 9 says, now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So when someone asks you, oh, I love the day of the Lord, because it's a warning. When you share these things with people, it's like, you ever wondered how Israel survived all these years? Have you ever thought about how this little tiny nation has actually managed to exist when they're completely surrounded by their enemies? They're well-armed, mortal enemies who express desire, by the way, to the entire world is to wipe them off the face of the earth. It's not like anybody hides that. That's in the charter of the PLO, and it's a direct result of communications with Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. They've actually said it. We want to destroy them completely. So we'll share with you what God says. Malachi declared, thus says the Lord, I, the Lord, change not. So if you use the most common form of reasoning, which is called a syllogism, deductive reasoning, thought, syllogism consists of a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. So in our case, our major premise is negative. The church is not appointed to wrath. Romans 5, 9 says we'll be saved from wrath. God has not appointed us to wrath. Our minor premise is he's going to hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the day of his great wrath has come. The only conclusion is he's going to save us from the tribulation. It's just simple deductive reasoning. He cannot save us from something and then put us through the thing he saved us from. Because we know the reason why he's going to pour out his wrath. So when someone comes to you and says, what do you save from? What are you going to tell them? The wrath of God. I'm not going to experience it. I don't plan on being here during the tribulation. 
That's why this passage is hopeful. And now we can read the rest of this like a story, and I'm just going to draw three points from it because they're very clear. Verse 5, the people will be oppressed, everyone by another, and everyone by his neighbor, and a child will be insolent towards an elder. Now, I want you to think of in the light of the wrath of God is coming. It's going to be poured out for a very specific reason. That time is called the last days. Israel is back in the land. Now, listen to what Isaiah said is going to be the case when that happens. Child insolent towards an elder. The base towards the honorable When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, be our ruler. Let these ruins be under your power. In that day, he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people, for Jerusalem stumbled and Judah has fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. To provoke the eyes of his glory, to look upon their countenance as witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought this evil upon themselves. Say to the righteous that it will be well with them for they shall eat of the fruit of their doings. The first thing that you see here is pretty clear. It's the rise of rampant homosexuality. In the very last days, they'll no longer hide it. That is the sin of Sodom. No matter what liberal theologians keep trying to cram down our throats, the sin of Sodom was that men lied with men as they do with the woman. They're going to have some kind of flagrant attitude towards that, a demonstration of their sin, as they did in Sodom. They become brazen. They look for recognition. People will be unkind, unjust, unloving. Young people will no longer value the council of elders. Sound like any world that you're in? Has that world ever existed globally before? It has not. We've had these problems before, but never like we have them now. Notice the comfort to the righteous. It's going to be okay with you when God shakes. It's going to be well with you. Why? Because he saved us from his wrath. Amen? That's why Jesus came. He goes on and says something. Woe to the wicked, for it shall be ill with them, verse 11. For the reward of his hand shall be given to him. That's for my people. My children are their oppressors. Women rule over them. Oh, my people, alas, those who cause you to err and destroy your paths. You talk about a corrupt government. I I am frankly astonished at what's going on in our government right now. I never thought I'd live long enough to see this. This is nuts. It's crazy. It's like the whole system is corrupt. And I'm not taking a political stand here. I'm just simply saying it stinks. It's nuts. Still the best system of government on the planet, but if our system, which is the best system, is as nuts as it is, can you imagine what it's like in China? Or Russia? Or anywhere in the African continent? Or South America? Every government on earth is corrupt. Children are going to be their oppressors. Women will rule over them. Verse 13, for the Lord stands to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people, with his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard. Now notice this. You plunder the poor. It's in your houses. 
What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? We have more people in poverty today than ever in the course of human history. Oh, we're richer than ever in human history, but we have more people in poverty. Why? Because we have more people. And there's consequently more poor. Grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God. Moreover, the Lord says, the daughters of Zion are haughty. Now, I would ask that you would please put this into a Hebrew context. In a Hebrew context, women were very, very, very chaste, and they were actually not allowed to even talk to men in public. I'm not suggesting we need to go back to that place, but I am suggesting what follows is pretty easy to see. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they walk around with outstretched necks and wanton eyes. It literally says they go whoring. Walking and mincing as they go. Objectifying themselves is what it's actually getting at. Being so sexually oriented that the women who used to be the guardians of chastity are now no longer, let's, let's face it, throughout human history, you ladies have been the brighter light in the, in the, in the pair with this regard. Making a jingling with their feet. This is describing what would have been the normal way that a prostitute would walk through town. That may be offensive to you, but it's nonetheless what it says. And this is the daughters, look who it is, of Zion, God's holy people. And therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will uncover their secret parts. In other words, expose their nakedness. For in that day, the Lord will take away the finery the jingling anklets, the scarves, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, the headband, the perfume boxes, the charms, the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, the robes. And so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. And instead of a sash, a rope instead of well-set hair baldness instead of a rich rope a girding of sackcloth and a branding instead of beauty your men shall fall by the sword your mighty in the war her gates shall lament and mourn and shall be desolate and sit on the ground that sounds like a world to me where radical feminism has taken control to where the roles that God put into the marriage relationship are reversed. To where it goes way beyond equality to some place that we're heading right now. It's what the Bible says, folks. It's not what Jeff says. It's what the Bible clearly says. This is the reason that the judgment ultimately is going to come upon Judah and Jerusalem. Their carnal living. Extravagance. The the turning over to one's thought life and one's mind to things that we should not turn our minds over to. And you'll notice in intermixed in all of this, there is a proudness of it. There is a, this is my right. Not only should I do this, I'm proud. We just had a congresswoman talk to another congresswoman about how she was grateful she got to murder her baby. Grateful that she had the right. That's a world that's in trouble. That's not a world that's doing well. That's not we finally arrived. That's a world that needs to stop really quickly and go, what are we doing? Because that is nothing to brag about. 
It's nothing to be proud of. The death of innocent children is an abomination unto the Lord. And it's abomination for the men as well, by the way. Let me be really clear here. Make no mistake about what I'm saying. It takes two to make a baby, and the man is every bit as guilty. The problem is God warned us what this was all going to look like. He said these these things 2,700 years ago. Why? Because he wants to spare us from the wrath. He wants us to turn our lives over to Jesus. He wants us to think about these things and go, what am I doing? Why, Why do I think this way? Why would I ever... Why would I ever vote for somebody that that would think these things are okay? Why would I ever put myself in a situation that would make me a party to these types of things? Now, I think the church, it's, it's incumbent upon us to take a stand for righteousness in these last days because people are watching how we respond to these things and they're getting their cue from us. And if the church won't stand strong for the holiness of the Lord, then the world is doomed. The world is doomed. And so I pray that as we celebrate, and I know this is a little bit of a downer, but I want to end on an up note. As we celebrate the birth of Christ, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, right? That salvation comes by believing on the only begotten Son of God. Amen? It's not a hard thing. The result of that is sanctification. We begin to walk in the Lord, right? We we begin to change the way we think, and the way we think governs how we act. And when we start to change the action, God says, you got it. That's why fruit in our lives matters. And so I just want to remind you, There is a seriousness to Christmas. There's a joy to Christmas. There's an absolute elation that should come to us from Christmas. Because Emmanuel, Christ with us, God with us, has come. But when you're talking to your friends and family, maybe at some point in time around that Christmas dinner table, You've got those unsaved loved ones. Maybe ask them how you think they think the world is doing. Get to some of those questions. It's like, well, what do you think about the Lord? Get their minds set on heavenly things. Because in that day, one day is coming. I can't tell you it's going to be next week. I wouldn't even venture a guess. But I know when I look around the world, the things that Isaiah prophesied 2,700 years ago, I can see going on. What he said would happen, that Israel would go back in the land and never ever be removed from it again, has already happened. The nations that he said would rise up against them are already in place. So what that does for me is make me really thankful I'm saved. Amen? Because he hasn't appointed us to wrath. So be joyful in that, but also stand strong. Have God's opinion on these things. Because the Lord is actually looking to us. He's looking to and fro to see those who are his. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together. I'm going to bring some pastors up front. If you need prayer after service, they'll be here. Father, thank you. Lord, I just cry, Abba, Father, thank you, Jesus, that you've not appointed us to any of these things. But your word declares to us that we ought not to walk in blindness as those who do not know the truth. 
but we should examine the times and the seasons. We can look at the tree and see that the leaves are withering or we can understand that our world is going the exact direction that you said it would uh, before you snatch your church home and before some of these things begin to happen. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make us a bright light. Lord, as we celebrate you coming as the light of the world, as we have been given that light to shine in this world, Lord, will we be faithful to it? We thank you for the power of your word, the majesty of truth. Pray that you would bless us. Lord, anoint us. If there's anyone here tonight that's afraid, maybe they're wondering whether they're saved or not, they can get that squared away right now. Lord, they can come and be prayed for and and invite you into their life and be saved. Father, thank you. It's that simple. We ask all this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus, the babe in the manger, who's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. In his name, Jesus. Amen.